As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. So today sees the start of the last 16 at the 2022 World Cup here in Qatar. Straight knockout football from here on in. The group stages finished yesterday and there was yet more drama. The big story saw South Korea progressing at the expense of Uruguay, leaving Luis Suarez in floods and floods and floods of tears. I'm Adam Leventhal and this is The Athletic Football Podcast. So this episode is brought to you from the Souk Wakif, which is the main marketplace here in Doha. It's based on a on a on an old souk, but it is actually a, a recreation in Qatari style. Uh, interconnected streets of markets selling um, souvenirs and spices and juice bars. There's cafes. We're sat in a cafe right now. There's uh, shisha on the go. If you're not familiar with shisha, it is uh, flavoured tobacco, like supercharged uh, vaping in the air. And it is um, it's quite powerful, but it is at the same time quite sweet smelling. Not good for you, all the same, but hey ho. So we are here um, with Jay Harris. Jay, very good morning. Morning to you. And Paul Tenorio. It's nice being out here, isn't it? It is quite nice, actually. We're, we're, in, the sh- we're in the shade. That makes it a lot nicer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sounds of the morning to prepare for the knockouts of the evening. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it is a different scene in the morning here than it is in the evening because, and it, it's been fascinating to be here during the tournament in the evening when all the fans especially during the you know the group stages fans of all persuasions mixing and gathering and chatting celebrating it, it, it's been quite a buzzy place hasn't it yeah definitely i've got to, i really like the smell of the shisha so it's definitely giving me a nice aroma yeah, absolutely it is. but um i was walking through the souk a couple of days ago and kind of like ran into some spain fans just banging a drum and then they started grabbing some brazil fans who got into the mix 
And that's kind of what World Cups are about, that kind of clash of cultures, people meeting each other for the first time, sharing stories. So uh, yeah, I quite love walking through this little section. It is a unique thing to have so many fans together. Obviously, we know the background to the tournament, eight venues, all based around one city in, in Qatar. Uh, it is an interesting place. There's plenty of stuff going on around us. Plenty of stuff going on in Group H in that climax, of course, as well. Huang Hee Chan gave South Korea that sensational injury time victory over Portugal. And Michael Cox was there and sent us this. And they will get the counter with Son. We've seen him do it before. Will he try and go all the way once again? He'll feed it through and the flag stays down. And South Korea could have the goal that sends them into the last 16 for only the third time in their history. The funny thing about this game was that you never really sensed at any point in the second half that South Korea were going to get the win. They didn't create that many chances. There weren't long spells of pressure until this moment, just as the, the number of minutes of stoppage time was being announced. Son Heung-min picked up the ball 80 yards from goal and then showed two completely different qualities. First, he showed the speed to launch the counter-attack and then he showed the patience to slow down, wait for the right run and play a pass between a defender's legs, which must be the assist of the tournament so far. I think the wonderful thing about this game was that South Korea had to wait on the other result. They had to wait, it felt like an eternity, probably about four or five minutes. The players were all gathered in the centre circle waiting. And then of course you had this explosion of joy at the final whistle. And a little bit like Japan the previous day, you had a situation where both sides playing in that ground had gone through. So you got this incredible atmosphere around the stadium, no one downhearted, everyone enjoying themselves. There's been some games in this tournament where the atmosphere has been very dead. But South Korea and Portugal both brought a huge number of travelling fans. And even though the game wasn't fantastic for long periods, it ended up being one of the most memorable of this pretty fantastic group stage. Yeah, so that result meant that South Korea uh, beat Uruguay to a last 16 place on goals scored, despite victory in their game with Ghana. Jay, you were there at the game. All the build-up was focused on the meeting between Ghana and Luis Suarez. He was put up for the press conference. He ended up in tears despite Uruguay winning. Just describe the atmosphere, the occasion, how it unfolded. You're wearing your, your Ghana shirt yeah. this morning for us. I mean, I feel a real conflict of emotions because obviously one part of me is really gutted that Ghana's revenge mission failed i mean in the build-up to the game television cameras uh, inside the stadium locked on a fan who ha was holding up a placard which said revenge for 2010. when the draw was made back in april uh the president of the ghanaian football association spoke about revenge ghana's president spoke about revenge <clears throat> but then at the same time i can remember watching that game at the 2010 world cup i was 15 years old and to see it play out 12 years later like I've just witnessed a bit of World Cup history, good or bad. Um, but I just feel so gutted for, for Ghana, the way it played out. But on the flip side, the supporters were, were celebrating at the end because Suarez still went out. And um, I was in the press conference after the game and, and Otto Addo claimed I had no idea about the score. I didn't tell the players to, to do anything. I just wanted to try and get an equaliser because the final 10 minutes, you know, there was a roar from the crowd and it really felt like Instead of defending the lead, 
it felt like Ghana were like, well, we want to score <laughs> and like truly eliminate them. But then Daniel Amate in the mix zone, um, he said that he was aware of the score and he told his teammates to defend more because he said, if we're going out, they can't go through. And, and he said like, that was important for me. So that gives you a flavour of the narrative that was going on. It, it was chaos and so much stuff happened in the game. It's hard to know where to begin because Andre Ayew's missed penalty almost feels a little bit of an afterthought now. Suarez kind of takes over. The villain of the piece absolutely reveling in the drama of it all. Big part in both goals. Starts nutmegging players and Aki Williams. Then there's a, a potential red card when the Arisqueta stamps one of the Ghanaian defenders. VAR don't look at it. Then Suarez gets booked later on in the game for kicking the ball away and and then all of a sudden, when Uruguay realised they needed another goal, I mean, their bench just start going absolutely crazy at every marginal decision. I mean, I think Cavani gets taken out on the counter. Ghana's keeper makes an incredible save from a Cavani header and like lands horribly. And it looked like at one point he was going to come off with like a, a neck or a head injury. So much going on. It, it was hard to concentrate on everything all at once. But then just got to finally end on full-time whistle goes. And Uruguay's players just immediately go to the ref, surround him, start absolutely bombarding him. Godin starts pulling the referee and the referee just shoots off down the tunnel, followed by at least 10 Uruguay substitutes, I'd say. And it, you've got this bizarre situation where Uruguay are moaning, but they actually won the game 2-0. Um, and the head coach, you know, came out and said, you know, we're, we're out because Portugal got a a penalty that FIFA came out and said wasn't a penalty. So there was so much going on. My, my brain feels absolutely scrambled, but I, I'm very glad I got to witness it all, even if it was, uh, yeah, emotional. And the, the picture, obviously back in 2010, was Luis Suarez in the end celebrating that victory, having handball, been sent off, Asamo Jan then missed the penalty. The picture now is him in tears. And do you feel that it's almost enough for the the Ghana fans does that feel like revenge it doesn't I mean because it's you still still lost the game you still gone out of the of the World Cup so is it enough I don't think it's enough I think it's it's, it's a revenge of sorts but it's very bittersweet one of the other subplots when teams go out is right what's going to happen to the head coach especially if teams have underperformed or it's the end of a cycle or whatever. Um, Roberto Martinez, the Belgian coach, has, has gone. Tata Martino from Mexico has, has gone. And Otto Addo from Ghana has left as well with Chris Hewton waiting in the wings almost, it seems. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure what's going on with, with Chris Hewton, but to give a little bit of the background, Otto Addo became Ghana's assistant coach, I think in September, October last year. Um, and he still has a role at Borussia Dortmund in March for Ghana's World Cup qualifiers against Nigeria or the, or the World Cup playoff against Nigeria. Um, Otto Ada stepped up to become the head coach. And then in the press conference yesterday, he said, look, um, I made the decision that regardless of what happened at the World Cup, even if we won, uh, I'd step down afterwards. Um, and he just said it was a decision he'd made with his family uh, and that he wanted to go back to his role in Germany at Dortmund. But... I think there'll be a little bit of sadness from, from, from Ghana that he's stepping down because I think he's a coach of real good quality. But I guess some of the positives you can take from Ghana's time at the tournament is they've got quite a young squad. You know, Mohamed Koudis has been simply phenomenal. 
You've got Tarek Lamptey, who's not really used, but you know he's a player that, that's got a lot of potential. Um, same with Mohamed Salisu. So I think whatever coach steps in next, like there's more than enough there to give them hope for the future. And we're waiting to see what happens with Diego Alonso as far as Uruguay are concerned, because I was looking at my phone on the way home late last night after the Brazil uh, against Cameroon game. And already it was, oh, Mar Marcelo Bielsa is going to be coming in. Uh, is this sort of gathering pace already as we speak this, this morning? Yeah, I mean, over the course of this tournament, uh, I was talking to Felipe Cardenas about it, who had covered a, a few Uruguay games, and he was saying that in the mix zone during the group stage after games, there were implications at least from players that, oh, you it, with the issues with the team, you need, you need to speak to Diego Alonso. He's the one that, that knows the answers to why the football hasn't been good enough, why we haven't been attacking enough. There was a lot of buzz back home that Diego Alonso just wasn't delivering what the people believed Uruguay was capable of. And, and so I think there was a, a sense of a, almost an inevitability that this would be the end of Diego Alonso's time, whatever happened at this World Cup. Though I suppose had they been very successful, I think Diego Alonso might have had a chance. Um, we'll see. We'll see what, what happens. I, there's always somebody waiting in the wings, it feels like. And it's funny because, you know, Felipe and I were talking. It's like we think Diego Alonso could be a candidate for the Mexico job that Tata Martino just left. So it's almost like musical chairs a bit here um, at the World Cup when it comes to managers. But I think I think for sure over the course of the group stage, it became clear that it would be difficult for Diego Alonso to continue on as the Uruguay manager just because they were so dissatisfied, not just with the results, but the way the team was playing. And, you know, I, I always wonder the dynamics of that for all of these teams at the World Cup. Last Yesterday I was in the press conference for the Netherlands and that was all of the talk as well. It's not just that Holland is winning. Well, they're not winning with the style of play that you want in Holland. And and I wonder how much that's changing now. Like, do, should we care as much about the style of these teams as the results? England, I feel like, can can speak to it, right? That, that's that been a part of the, the narrative around the England team through the Euros. With it's Sierra a festival Southgate. of football with England. I like, don't know what you're talking about. Shouldn't, shouldn't, we, shouldn't it matter most about the results? Like, should Diego, I mean, Diego Alonso didn't get the results in the end, so he's going to go home no matter what. But it's just funny to have watched all these press conferences from all these different teams, and this same conversation is happening. It's like, the results are good, but the football's not good enough. Or the results aren't good enough, so you're, you're out no matter what. I, at some point, we have to start to weigh the results as the most important thing, I would, I would think. I don't know. I'm naive, I guess, in that way. No, it's, maybe, no, you're romantic, not naive. Yeah, romantic. Romantic, romantic which is lovely. This almost feels like a little bit of a breakfast date we're having here, sat in the keep. <laughs> I like it. Okay. I'm just intruding on it. <laughs> um, okay, let's uh, deal with the situation in Group G and Switzerland in a tempestuous match against Serbia, came out 3-2 victors. They then joined Brazil in the last 16. I was at the game uh, yesterday at the Lucille Stadium, which is where the final is going to take place. It's, it is an incredible um, arena. Um, Brazil were actually beaten by Cameroon, having won their first two games, not conceded a goal, and then it was a, a shock winner uh, in the closing stages the first African team to beat Brazil in a World Cup match. And afterwards, I spoke to the Cameroonian journalist Francis Ajermain, 
and he gave us this reaction. Well, it's a sweet bitter emotion because we would have loved to go through. But again, uh, we are happy that we've, beat, we've beaten Brazil. We came here, we had a belief. Nobody believed in us, but we had a belief. This is a match we have been looking for. Every Cameroonian has been looking for. We've been looking for this game because we, we've always seen Brazil as we know we are the, we are we are number one in Africa and we've always seen Brazil as number one in the world. So we look at them as our rivals. So this is a game we have always been looking we'll be looking forward to. Many people might be surprised, but we are not surprised because we came to play this game. This is not the first time we are beating Brazil. Not despite the fact that it's not in the World Cup, at the World Cup, we beat them at the Confederations Cup in 2003 Olympic Games. So each time we meet Brazil, we always want to play our our all. So. We, we take the win, but we're disappointed that we are not going through. But at least this win gives us it's a lot of it's more than consolation for us. And that moment with the captain scoring, taking his shirt off, getting sent off, holding his shirt to the crowd. What a way to go. You can understand the emotion of the, if the captain, he who knows, he knew he was on a yellow card and but he still took off his shirt. And if you, if you watch the action clearly, you will see the manager trying to and the players trying to cover him to put, up, put on his shirt. But... He didn't because it's a very big moment for him, not only for him, but for every Cameroonian to beat Brazil. We have that pride in Africa as the first African nation to beat Brazil at the FIFA World Cup. So it's not a given. And we are very proud of that achievement. And one other question on the sort of the disruption caused by the Onana sort of situation with Rigobert's song and the arguments. Did that have any effect or not? Oh, it didn't really have any. It didn't really have an effect, but... We must say that uh, the, 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 the people in charge or the, the federation handled the situation very poorly because if they were proactive, it wouldn't have spilled out like the way it spilled, it spilled, out, it spilled out. But after the situation on Monday, the, they spoke together, they sat together, they spoke together and they moved over it and they decided to come together as a team and play as a team. And that's why you can see that today we didn't have our centre-back pairing. And those were substitutes. Uh, Christopher was making just his second, getting just his second cap, while Bosse who played with a left back played at centre back. So just, that is just his, his first cap. So they were they were they were one 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 um, fired up for this game today. And I think they have put that situation, the Onana situation, behind them. So that was recorded in the mix zone, and I actually also spoke to some of the Brazil squad, including Richarlison, uh, who seemed to suggest that Neymar should be okay for Brazil. Uh, one of the communications officers as well from the Brazil team seemed to suggest that, yeah, maybe maybe he might be okay. So that's definitely one to watch. But we do have to mention uh, Vincent Abubakar, who scored the winning goal. <laughs> He'd rugby tackled someone not that long before to get a first yellow card, scored an amazing goal, brilliant header, took off his shirt, then thought, ah, that's the second yellow. I'm going to get sent off. So I'm going out on a high. I'm hoisting my shirt into the sky. I'm going all in on this. Oh. It was, it was a, it, that was, you know, talk about World Cup moments. Yeah. Luis Suarez, that was a great World Cup moment, wasn't it? Yeah, it was an iconic World Cup moment. That little um, photo of him with the referee at the end where he's kind of waving goodbye to him. He's like already gone viral on Twitter. I absolutely love it. But the only thing I think about Abu Bakar is that he didn't start in Cameroon's first game, which they lost 1-0. And he ended up scoring three times in two games. So if I was a, a Cameroonian fan, I'd be looking at that thinking, we, we, we've been knocked out because you didn't start him in the first game. And then also just a quick word on his infamous um, almost spat with Mohamed Salah, where I think it was earlier this year, he basically said he thought Mohamed Salah was overrated and that, you know, Abu Bakar felt like 
he was as good, but he just didn't play for a big European team. And I mean, fair play to him because he's just just scored a 91st minute winner against Brazil. So all round good fun. Yeah, and he was the, the first player to score and get a red card at a World Cup since Zinedine Zidane back in uh, in 2006. So he's, he's racked up the um, the sort of high profile-ness of his uh, of his moment. So fair play to him. And I think there's a lot of respect from the, the Cameroonian journalists as we heard, but also his teammates as well for just being a big character and having an impact at this World Cup, despite the fact they are heading home. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Right, it's time to focus now our attention on the last 16. Coming up, we've got two juicy games, Argentina against Australia. But our focus is on the Netherlands against the USA, who have battled hard to get this far. Polisic on the run. Polisic has Weah. Polisic rolls it in. Tim Weah! And Musa arriving. And here's Pulisic. Oh, and he's so unlucky. What a strike. Is still to be done for both sides. It finishes here. England nil, the United States nil. Mr. McKinney, Des making a big run. It's meant for him. Des is snuck in behind. Des in the middle. Pulisic scores! Might have paid the price, but the U.S. takes the lead. Thanks to Christian. He put it away and, and got hurt in the process, but we, we love him and we thank him. I mean, he's huge. I mean, um... Going back to him not qualifying for the last World Cup and then being here and, and qualifying us through, um, that's just a work of God. Uh, God bless him. I mean, uh, you know, I, I love him and he's so important to this team. He, he's a key player and a leader, so I mean, someone that, that, that we definitely need. USA, USA. That's a big game, man. Well, I spoke to the coach and the players. I said, you can do this. They went, oh, they're gonna. they did it. God love them. 
And the main news, Paul, for the US is that Christian Pulisic, uh, the hero in that final group game, is good to go. Yeah, that's been the word pretty much since the hour after the game ended when Christian Pulisic sent a Snapchat to I don't know whom, but it found its way to Twitter, which tends to happen with you know, what stars do on their social media. And uh, that's been the word since then. Um, Christian Pulisic came out in a press conference, said, I'm feeling fine. It is a pelvic bone injury. It's bruised. It, it didn't feel great, but I feel much better now. Greg Berhalter in his press conference said, we feel very confident that Christian Pulisic will be able to play. We just want to watch him in training one more time. And then last night after training, he announced that he is cleared to play in the game. So that's important for the U.S. I mean, obviously, Christian Pulisic is a difference maker. But in this team, the struggle that this U.S. team has had all tournament, all through qualifying, has been scoring goals. It's been in the final third. They haven't been able to create enough chances, and they certainly haven't been able to score enough goals. And Christian Pulisic is one of the few players that they can count on to to do so. He, he set up the goal in the first game. He scored the goal in the third game. And, and so to have him on the field is a huge boost for this team. We've got a, a bit of a, a football-based argument going on uh, around us, which is which is good to see. It's all very friendly. I, I think it's um, Australian media. Uh, I think some someone heard his accent and is now teasing him about what's going to happen this evening ah, against right. Lionel Messi. Jolly good. Yeah, that's what happens here. We've got you know fans of all persuasions, as we mentioned earlier on, just sort of uh, mixing around us. Um, Paul, in terms of the, the sort of the tactical side of things and how Greg Berhalter will approach this, he's got experience of, of playing in the in the Dutch league. He's coming up against Louis van Gaal. It's not sexy total football with the Dutch at the moment. So is this maybe going to be, I don't know, sort of similar proposition for the US than the, the group games that they've had, you know, in particular against England and against Iran? Do you see similarities or do you think it's going to be totally different? I think this game will be most similar to the England game. The U.S. against Wales and Iran faced teams that were sitting in a lower block looking to counter them. And those games are actually the worst for the U.S. to match up against. This is a U.S. team that wants to play transition football. They want to win the ball in midfield and get forward quickly and try to take advantages of those spaces in behind with Pulisic, with Tim Weah. And it's been hard for them to break teams down that are organized and in a low block. I don't expect that we'll see that against the Netherlands. They aren't playing the beautiful Dutch football that we're used to, but they do want to play. And they will come out and they will press you and they will look to win the game in midfield. Obviously, they've got some some decent players on the field. Frankie de Jong is somebody who is quite involved for them in midfield. And so I think we're going to see a game and an approach from the U.S. that's much more similar to that England game where you know, they hope that Weston McKinney and Eunice Musa and Tyler Adams can do what they did against England, which is close up the middle of the park and try to open up space uh, on the wings for Pulisic and Weah to run into. Um, but it, it, I do think there is a, that interesting subplot of Greg Berhalter, what we've seen in this tournament. I've known him for a long time, and he is kind of a, a football manager's manager. He loves to talk tactics. He loves to break things down into the, the smallest of details, all of those nuances. And it is the Dutch side of him that that comes out in tournaments like this. He's had months to prepare for his three group stage opponents. I thought it was striking that Louis van Gaal in his press conference said, oh, I, I've only just started to watch the U.S. And when Greg Berhalter was asked about it, he said, well, we've been scouting Holland for nine months now, um, which I think fits Greg Berhalter's personality. This will be a big game for him because Dutch football had such an enormous influence on who he is as a manager. When you look at his club record, that's how he wanted to play a 4-2-3-1, uh, disorganize the opponent with the ball, as he likes to say, keep possession, 
And I think he'll ha feel he has something to prove against one of the more famous Dutch managers of all time on such a grand stage. And he'll have a specific plan for what he's seen from, from the Netherlands in this tournament, the way he wants to break them down. And I think once again, we're going to see Weston McKenney in some sort of important role. Against England, it was out floating to the right side. Against Iran, he was floating out to the left side. But it was all the details to try to break down specifically what the opponent does well. I, I, I'm such a nerd about this, but I'm very interested to see what it is that Greg Berhalter's latched onto that he thinks will make the difference in this knockout game. I'm just thinking back as you're talking there. The first time I met you was back at the Gold Cup in 2019, I think it was. And we were at a US news conference. And it was the first time that I'd seen a, a head coach actually really stop after a press conference and engage and talk and was really inquisitive about what was going on elsewhere in the world and, you know, chatting to people. I suppose that sort of speaks to his intense focus on, on leaving no stone unturned, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he is a curious person in general. Um, you know, I remember when I first kind of started to get to know Greg Berhalter, he was still the manager of the Columbus crew and I live in Chicago and so before the Chicago Fire play games, I'll go to the team hotel of the visiting team uh, to meet with the manager and meet with the sporting director just, just for my work purposes. And I, I sat with Greg Berhalter and we ended up that we had both read the same book um, in the weeks leading up to that chance meeting. And come on, what book was it? It was I'm almost embarrassed to say it was a leadership book. We'll, we'll say that. And I had, I mean, I've never read a leadership book in my life. And I read this one and it just so happened that Greg Berhalter had read it. And we ended up having like an hour long conversation about it. But in the course of that conversation, it led down these pathways and alleys into his life and his experiences as a manager, his experiences as a player, how they made him think about football. And, you know, I do think that's a huge part of who he is as a manager. It's funny because the attitude about Greg Berhalter back home amongst the, the kind of the diehard football fans, which is who I interact with the most, there's not many of them in the United States, right? We're, we're still kind of a niche um, sport in that way. But they've, they've been so dissatisfied with him as a manager because they believe that this is the golden generation of American soccer and he's not getting the best out of this team and these players. And the narrative here at the World Cup amongst tactical blogs and coaches from other countries has been how complete of a tactical plan the U.S. has had, how well Greg Berhalter has done in this tournament, and that's not been the attitude back home. And I think it's like this weird dynamic where we are seeing that Greg Berhalter is actually quite a good football manager. He's got really good footballing ideas, and this tournament is probably the best stage to show that off. Um, and so I do think that there is going to be, you know, another level to that in this game. Um, and I do think that maybe the world and even American fans are getting a better idea of what Greg Berhalter brings to the equation of this young football team. That you can take this talent that's not yet formed. It's still quite raw. These players are, the, the more mature players on this team outside of Tim Ream are 24 years old. Then you've got guys like Eunice Musa who are 20. So to give them ideas and make it simple, this is your job, this is your role, this is how we'll play, that allows them to just rely on the footballing talent that they have. And, and that, for me, has been the difference for this U.S. team so far in the tournament, and I, I suspect it'll be the difference in this game as well. You were at the Netherlands press conference yesterday, Jay, and um, I suppose they're sort of 
differing characters, Greg Berhalter and uh, Louis van Gaal. Even though we have seen a softer side of Louis van Gaal, we, we should mention, you know, he was he was uh, handing out hugs at a news conference earlier on in the, in the tournament to a journalist who'd simply travelled to see him because he'd watched him as a, as a kid. So we have seen, you know, he's, he's got a bit of a reputation of being a bit of a stone wall, not really having much of a sense of humour. But... We've seen that. How do you think he, he approaches this game? Do you think it's almost like, now come on, look, we are the Dutch. We are going to win. We're going to progress because we are just the superior footballing side. Or do you think there is a little bit of a, a worry in his mind that, hang on a minute, they, they, they have unpicked other teams so far in this tournament? I spent quite a fair bit of time just at the, the Netherlands training camp over the last couple of days, um, watched an open training session, and it was a really relaxed atmosphere. I was quite taken aback by it. Um, you had family, families and friends sitting on the side. So it was the day after they beat Qatar. So it was only really a recovery session. Um, but the first thing I noticed was Cody Gakpo, Virgil van Dijk, Nathan Aki bouncing the football. And van Dijk was trying to basically play basketball and nutmeg Ake. And I thought, wow, like, like this is, these guys are at like a, a massive tournament. People forget that the Netherlands weren't at the last World Cup and they got knocked out. In, at the Euros in the last 16. So, of course, when you think of the Netherlands, you think of the prestige of, of what they've done in past World Cups, but actually, in recent memory, they've not really gone that deep in tournaments. Spoke to Denzel Dumfries and Martin Darun at the, the press conference the other day, and Dumfries spoke about, yep, we've got a plan for Pulisic, but I'm not going to tell you what it was. It, what it is, like, that would be stupid. Um, and Martin Darun spoke about Weston McKenney. They've come up against each other in, in Serie A, and he said... The rumours like I'm quite looking forward to this challenge, you know. I'm an energetic midfielder. Weston McKennie's an energetic midfielder. So is Tyler Adams. Like, I think it's going to be a really, really good clash. And then, interestingly, we spoke about how the Netherlands are kind of, kind of getting a little bit of flack for not playing total sexy football, as, <laughs> as you put it. And the US have obviously had a great defensive record. They've only conceded one goal and it was from a penalty. But Martin Darun... Um, teasingly said he, he did do it with a bit, little bit of a smile on his face it's like you know we feel pretty confident that we can score against the US without needing set pieces or anything like that so they clearly worked on something um, but I would expect it's all kind of going to fall on Gakpo or Depay's shoulders when I look at that Holland team I don't really see that much of an attacking threat apart from from those two Gakpo's obviously been a shining star at this tournament but the Netherlands aren't great coming up against the low block and that's what they're going to face later today so I think it's going to be quite a unique matchup, and, and as Paul said, I think it's going to be super tight. There's plenty to read on the Athletic um, about uh, the Netherlands, in particular Cody Gakpo. There's also you mentioned Virgil Van Dijk. There, a piece that dropped uh, yesterday regarding all the players that have emanated from Suriname. Virgil Van Dijk is 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 one of those players, and just sort of tells the the, the footballing story of of that nation. Um, I wanted to give the final word to to Paul. Just in terms of, you know, people listening to this back at home in the US, do you think they're all going to be dialed into this? This is going to be another big, big event where people can engage in because the, the England one sort of fell flat, didn't it? It was an opportunity missed of, oh, that's a nil-nil draw. The Iran one certainly delivered. And now this one's another level up. Yeah, every four years, well, and let's, let's skip 2018 because that, <laughs> that certainly didn't happen. There are these flashpoints in the US for, for soccer, for chances for the sport to grow back home. And this tournament is providing another one of those. And 20 million people tuned in to that U.S.-England game. It was the most that had ever watched a World Cup match in the U.S. Um, and so now we have a Saturday game, knockout, with a, with a country that's starting to believe. 
absolutely there are going to be people tuned in. I wouldn't be surprised if records are set again, though it is an early morning game, especially for the West Coast. Um, it'll be a 7 a.m. game out, out West. But I, I think that that's why this tournament matters for this young group. They recognize that it's not just about what they do here at the tournament in 2022, but they're trying to create momentum for the sport ahead of the World Cup coming back to the U.S. in four years' time. They have to create excitement around the sport, around the team, belief that this men's team is not defined by what happened in 2018, especially because only Christian Pulisic of this group was actually there for that failure. And so this game becomes hugely important to once again capture new audience, new people who are going to be tuning in saying, I guess I'll watch some soccer then today because everyone else is watching it. Well, it's can, got a, and it's got a penalty shootout bolted on at the end yeah, of it. Yeah, that's so right. You know, they can understand that. You know, they, they can understand that. Hopefully, I think hopefully for me, it, it's a performance at least like England where the U.S. don't look overmatched. They don't, they're not defending the whole time. That they can, that they can show that they can play the game well. And, and that will draw people in and, and believe that, hey, this is worth latching on to and we're going we're gonna to be ready for when the World Cup comes in four years because it can be such an important moment for the growth of the sport, for, for us at The Athletic and people who want to subscribe and tune into our coverage as well. Very good. Dialed into all the messaging. I like that, Paul. Good, <laughs> good work. We wish you luck this evening. Enjoy the game. I'll just give one final word, very, very quick word to Jay. Just literally, who's winning the other game? Because it just seems almost like preordained that it's Argentina going through against Australia, right? I mean, I've got a few more friends in Australian media because I was at the game when they beat Denmark. So I feel like if they're listening, they're going to absolutely hate me, but Argentina. Yeah, OK. We shall see. We have had plenty of shocks at this World Cup. We certainly have. So you never know. Hmm. We will see. <laughs> For much, much, much more on uh, all of the topics that we've discussed today, you'll be able to get all the reaction, all the storylines, all the insight from the knockout phase all the way through to the final uh, on December the 18th on The Athletic. If you're not part of the family already, uh, you can subscribe to The Athletic for $2 or £2 a month for 12 months by heading to theathletic.com forward slash football pod for much, much more. Also, just to point you in the direction, with one eye on England as well, Denver Bar's guide to Senegal. Get stuck into that, and then you will have the most in-depth knowledge on England's opponents ahead of the game tomorrow. That's it for today. From the Souk Wakif, I'm going to go and get a shisha. The Athletic.